Section 6 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S. Eskim, Manikut Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 33. The Kishinev Massacre. Part 1. 1. Pogroms as a counter-revolutionary measure The frenzy of political reaction, which raged for two decades, was grist to the mill of the revolution. Stunned by the blow it had received at the beginning of the 80s, the Russian revolutionary movement came back to consciousness at the beginning of the 20th century, when the hopes for a change of policy on the part of Nicholas II had been completely blasted. The agitation among the students and the workingmen, the disorders at the universities, the strikes at the factories, the revolutionary propaganda carried on in the underground press at home and in the public press abroad, all these endeavors were gradually coordinated within the frame of the two revolutionary organizations, the Social Democratic and the Social Revolutionary Parties, both of which assumed definite shape between 1898 and 1900. The Social Revolutionary Party favored terrorism as a weapon in its struggle with the Russian government, which had made use of all the appliances of police terrorism to suppress the faintest stirring for liberty. This official terrorism raged with unrestricted violence. Nocturnal raids, arrests, prisons, and places of deportation or of penal servitude filled to overflowing with political criminals, mostly young men and women. Such were the agencies by means of which the government hoped to stamp out the revolutionary hydra, even when manifesting itself in the form of moderate constitutional demands. The revolutionaries fought terrorism with terrorism, and one of their victims was the reactionary minister of the interior, Sipiagin, who was assassinated in April 1902. The exasperated Tsar retorted by appointing to the same office von Plev, one of the most experienced henchmen of the Russian political inquisition, who had long before in his capacity of chief of the political police brought its mechanism to the top notch of efficiency. He was destined to play an ill-fated role in the martyrology of Russian Jewry. It was easily to be foreseen that the Russian revolutionary movement would make a strong appeal to the Russian Jewish youth. Had any other cultured nation been tormented and humiliated as cruelly and as systematically as were the Jews in Russia, it would surely have given birth to an immense host of desperate terrorists. True. The Jews supplied the revolutionary army with a large number of fighters than was warranted by their numerical proportion to the rest of the Russian population. Yet their number was insignificant when compared with the atrocities which were constantly perpetrated against them. As a rule, the Jewish college youth joined the ranks of the social democratic organization which disapproved of political assassination. There were particularly numerous Marxists among the Jewish young men and women 
who had been turned away from the Russian institutions of learning and had gone to Western Europe, where they imbibed the doctrines and methods of German social democracy. There were fewer Jews among the social revolutionaries, Gershuni, Gotz, and others, and these, too, did not, as a rule, take a direct part in the terroristic plots. As a matter of fact, the only terrorist act committed by a Jew was that of the working man, Hirsch Leckert, in Vilna. Stung by the barbarous conduct of the governor of Vilna, von Wahl, who had given orders to flog the Jewish workingmen in public for having arranged a demonstration on May 1, 1902, Leckert fired upon that official. The governor escaped unscathed, and Leckert paid with his life for the attempt. But on the whole, the revolutionary activity of the Jews was limited to the frequent political demonstrations arranged by the Bund and to the organizing endeavors of certain sections of the Jewish intellectuals who had joined the ranks of both Russian socialistic parties. Had the Russian government been guided by a genuine interest in the body politic, the spread of the revolutionary movement among the Jews which was the child of its own system of oppression, would have inevitably induced it to mitigate the system, which was bound to turn millions of people into desperados. But the Russian government was, properly speaking, not a government. It was a caste of officials who had degraded the administration of the country to the systematic endeavor of saving their own personal careers and class interests both of which were indissolubly bound up with unlimited autocracy. The Russian bureaucracy regarded the revolution as a personal threat, as a menace to its existence, and looked upon the Jewish participants in the revolution as their own individual enemies whose deeds were to be avenged upon the whole Jewish people. Thus, there ripened in the mind of Plev the head of the bureaucratic inquisition, a truly devilish plan to wage war against the Russian revolution by waging war against the Jews and to divert the attention of the Russian public, which was honeycombed with the revolutionary propaganda in the direction of the aliens, thereby stigmatizing the entire emancipatory movement in Russia as the work of Jewish hands, as in anti-patriotic cause which was foreign to the Russian people. It was part of this plan to engineer somewhere a barbarous anti-Jewish pogrom in order to intimidate the Jewish revolutionaries and to put it forward as a protest of the Russian people against the Jewish revolution. Drown the revolution in Jewish blood. This motto underlayed a terrible scheme which, beginning with 1903, was put into execution by the underlings of Nicholas II at the most crucial moments in the Russian revolutionary movement. 2. The organized Kishnev butchery. Needless to say, there was plenty of inflammable material for such an anti-Jewish conflagration. One of the criminal haunts of these incendiaries was situated at that time in Kishnev, the capital of semi-Moldavian Bessarabia. Until the end of the 19th century, the 50,000 Jews of that city had lived in peace and harmony with their Christian neighbors who numbered some 60,000. 
At the beginning of the new century, these friendly relations were severed owing to the untrammeled anti-Semitic agitation of a local yellow journalist, a petty official by the name of Khrushchevan. This official had been publishing in Kishinev since 1897 a local sheet under the name of Bessarabets, the Bessarabian. Having originally embarked upon a moderately progressive policy, the paper soon sold itself to the local anti-Semitic reactionaries from among the nobility and bureaucracy, and was thenceforward subventioned by the government. For a number of years, Khrushchevan's paper carried on an unbridled agitation against the Jews. The Jews were accused of every possible crime, of economic exploitation, of socialism, of hatred towards the Christians, of ritual murders, and of fathering the godless revolution. Favored by the powers that be, the Bessarabets could do what it pleased. The censorship of the paper lay in the hands of the deputy governor of Kishinev, Ustrogov, who during his administrative activity had proved himself a past master in the art of persecuting the Jews and curtailing the crumbs of rights that were still left to them. Under the auspices of such a censor, who was in reality a contributor to the paper, the latter was sure of immunity even when it proceeded to print appeals calling on the Christian population to make pogroms upon the Jews. This agitation was particularly dangerous in view of the fact that the Bessarabets was the only press organ in the province, the government consistently refusing to license the publication of any other paper. As a matter of fact, Khrushchevan's activity in Bessarabia was so well thought of by Plev that in 1902, the mercenary journalist received considerable sum from a special slush fund for the publication of a newspaper in St. Petersburg under the name of Dynamia, the banner with a similarly reactionary anti-Semitic tendency. However, in the capital, the filthy sheet was unable to find the readers. But as far as the Bessarabets was concerned, its influence was clearly felt. The Russian public opinion was affected by the poisonous doses administered to it daily. The sinister instincts of the mob became inflamed more and more, and there was the foreboding of a storm in the air. In the beginning of 1903, Khrushchev found an occasion to give a definite turn to his accustomed pogrom propaganda. In the town of Tubosari, the mutilated body of a Russian peasant boy, Libalenko, had been found, who, as was subsequently brought out by the judiciary inquiry, had been slain by his uncle in the hope of appropriating his portion of a bequest. The Bessarabets immediately launched a campaign against the Jews, accusing them of ritual murder. That's the Jews, let all these be massacred. Such appeals were almost daily repeated in the paper, which was read in all the salons and public houses of Bessarabia. The unenlightened Russian mob itched for an occasion to lay its hands upon the Jews. An attempt at a pogrom was made at Dubosari, but it was frustrated by the local Jews, who were of a sturdy physique. On the eve of the Easter festival of 1903, Mysterious rumors were set afloat in Kishinev itself, 
telling of the murder of a Christian servant girl whose death was ascribed to the Jews. In reality, the girl had taken poison and died, despite the efforts of her Jewish master to save her life. The goings-on in Kishnev on the eve of that Easter or the earmarks of an energetic activity on the part of some secret organization which was hatching an elaborated Finnish scheme. That criminal organization was centered in the local Russian club, which was the rallying point of the officials of the province. Shortly before the holiday, there suddenly appeared in the city an emissary of the political police, the gendarmerie officer Levendal, who had been dispatched from St. Petersburg. After Easter, when the sanguinary crime had already been committed, the same mysterious envoy vanished just as suddenly. The triumvirate Khrushcheban Ustrogov Levendal was evidently the soul of the terrible anti-Semitic conspiracy. Printed handbills were scattered about in the city, telling the people that an imperial ukase had been published, granting permission to inflict a bloody punishment upon the Jews in the course of the three days of the Christian Passover. The police made no attempt to suppress these circulars, for, as was subsequently brought out, they were in the conspiracy. Several police officials even hinted at the impending events in their talks with Jewish acquaintances. In the saloons and in the tea houses, the approaching pogrom was the subject of public discussion. The Jews were fully aware of the coming storm, though they scarcely realized that it would take the form not merely of an ordinary pogrom, but of a regular butchery. On the eve of the festival of Passover, the representatives of the Jewish community waited upon the governor and the chief of police, praying for protection, and received the cruel reply that the necessary instructions had already been given and that the proper measures for their safety had been adopted. The local Greek Orthodox bishop asked the rabbi, who came to see him on the subject, whether it was true that there was a Jewish sect which used Christian blood for ritual purposes. The conflagration, which was openly prepared by the incendiaries, broke out at the moment determined upon. On Sunday, April 6, the first day of the Christian Passover and the seventh day of the Jewish holiday, the church bells began to ring at noontime, and a large crowd of Russian burghers and artisans, acting undoubtedly upon a given signal, scattered all over the town and fell upon the Jewish houses and stores. The bands were preceded by street urchins who were throwing stones at the windows. The rioters, whose number was swelled by these useful fighters, seeing that police made no attempt to interfere, began to break into the houses and stores and to throw the contents on the street where everything was destroyed or plundered by the festive crowd. But even then, the police and soldier detachments who were stationed on the streets remained passive and made no attempt to arrest the rioters. This attitude served in the eyes of the mob as a final proof that the rumors concerning the permission of the Tsar to beat the Jews were correct. An immense riffraff, in a state of intoxication, crowded the streets, shouting, Death to the Zids! Beat the Zids! In the evening, looting gave way to killing. 
the murderers armed with clubs and knives assailed the Jews in the cars, on the streets, and in the houses, wounding them severely, sometimes even fatally. Even then, the police and military remained inactive. Only when, in one place, a group of Jews armed with sticks attempted to drive off the murderers, the police stepped in at once and disarmed their defenders. At 10 o'clock in the evening, the looting and killing were suddenly stopped. Rumor had it that the general staff of the rioters were holding a meeting concerning the further plan of military operations and were making arrangements for a systematic butchery. The army soon received the necessary orders and in the course of the entire day of April 7, from daybreak until 8 o'clock in the evening, Kishinev was the scene of bestialities such as find few parallels even in the history of the most barbarous ages. Finding themselves defenseless and exposed to the passions of a savage crowd, many Jewish families hid themselves in their cellars or in their garrets and sometimes sought safety in the houses of their Christian neighbors. But the murderers succeeded in hunting down their unfortunate victims. The Jews were slain in most barbarous fashion. Many of them were not killed at once but were left writing in primordial agonies. Some had nails driven into their heads or had their eyes put out. Little children were thrown from garrets to the pavement and their brains dashed out upon the stones. Women had their stomachs ripped open or their breasts cut off. Many of them became the victims of rape. One gymnasium pupil who saw his mother attacked by these fiends threw himself single-handed upon them and saved at the cost of his life his mother's honor. He himself was slain, and his mother's eyes were put out. The drunken horde broke into the synagogue and, getting hold of the Torah scrolls, tore them to shreds, defiled them, and trampled upon them. In one synagogue, the old shamis, Beadle, arrayed in his prayer shawl and shielding with his body the ark containing the sacred scrolls, was savagely murdered by the desecrators on the threshold of the sanctuary. Throughout the entire day, wagons were seen moving in the streets, carrying wounded and slain Jews to the hospitals, which had been converted into field lazarets. But even this sight did not induce the police to step in. The Russian population, outside the few isolated cases, made no attempt to defend the tormented Jews. The so-called intelligent public the officials with their wives and children, the students, the lawyers, the physicians walked leisurely upon the streets and looked on indifferently and sometimes even sympathetically while the terrible work was going on. The governor of Bessarabia, von Raven, who on the morning of the second day of the pogrom was waited upon by a Jewish deputation begging for protection, replied that he could do nothing since he had received no instructions from St. Petersburg. At last, at five o'clock in the afternoon, a telegram was received from Plev, and at six o'clock, large detachment of troops, fully armed, appeared on the central streets. No snow had the crowd noticed that the soldiers were ready to act, then it took to its heels, without a single shot being fired. Only in the outskirts of the town, 
which had not yet been reached by the troops, the plunder and massacre continued until late in the evening. It is needless to point out that had this readiness of the police and military to attend to their duty been displayed in Kishnev at the inception of the pogrom, not a single Jew would have been murdered, nor a single house destroyed. As it was, the murderers and rioters were given a free hand for two days, and the result was that 45 Jews were slain, 86 severely wounded or crippled, 500 slightly wounded, apart from cases of rape, the number of which could not be determined. 1,500 houses and stores were demolished and looted. The victims were mostly among the lower classes of the Jewish population, since many well-to-do Jewish families were able, by bribing the police heavily, to secure the protection of the latter and to have the rioters turned away from their houses. As against the enormous number of Jewish victims, there were only two fatalities among the intoxicated rioters. The Kishnev Jews seemed unable to resist the murderers and sell their lives dearly. End of section 6